Hey everyone, this is George A. Wood, and you are listening to New Numa Godcast with my man Norman, where he brings it raw and real. Check him out here. He's always got the next best conversation going on, but he has it raw and real for you here. Check him out. What's good, family? We know you're enjoying today's episode of New Numa Godcast with none other than Norman Brown, the professor. But we had to interrupt briefly to tell you about Norman's latest book. Recently, with all that's been happening with the pandemic, many have had questions. And in May 2020, Norman was hospitalized for nine days with COVID-19. When he came out of the hospital, he came out with a powerful testimony of how God saved him from death and his inspiration to write his newest book, Covert COVID-19, An Attack on Kingdom Agendas. Now, in this book, he shares his personal story of how he was attacked by the spirit that causes this virus as he declared war while he was writing this book, but he overcame it through faith, prayer, and fasting. In the book, he shares the revelation that God gave him about how this virus affected and exposed certain things about the church at large, which are necessary for believers to understand what's going on and this new thing God is doing in the earth. His book is available for download today on Amazon, so get your copy today. What's good, New Numa fam? I'm your host, Norm the Professor, a.k.a. Norman Brown. Welcome to the podcast where you come to get the real from a biblical perspective. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'd like to personally welcome you and want to let you know a little about what you may expect. I attack the raw issues affecting the church and the world at large today, giving you biblical backup for everything I say. Basically, this podcast gets in your face with issues that are trending, taboo, and tough to talk about, which today's watered-down churches don't even touch. I also interview Christians of all types of backgrounds, careers, ministries, and more to put on record their stories of redemption, salvation, and victory to inspire you to walk out your kingdom purpose to expand the kingdom of God in the earth. If you want the truth, this is definitely a podcast you want to hear. So get your spiritual ears ready to hear what the Lord is saying to the church. Peace. What's good, new Numa family? Once again, it's your boy Norman Brown, a.k.a. The Professor. What's good? Once again, we're about to get into um, this topic about God being in control. Is God in control? This is part two of my series on this. And um, I just want to continue on getting deeper into this subject because a lot of people are curious about this. A lot of people have opinions about this, but then there's the question of, is your opinion lining up with the actual word of God? And that is what's really important because a lot of people have a lot of opinions, but can they back it up with scripture? So today we're going to get into this even deeper and we're going to see what the Bible has to say about these things that, um, this this particular subject is very important because it really delves into some things that uh, we really need to see and we really need to understand. Now, I'm going to recap on a few things and then we're going to go into some more things this week and, and see what the Word of God has to say. Now... <clears throat> Before we get into it, make sure you follow me at Norm the Professor on Instagram. Make sure you follow the podcast at New Numa. And hopefully I don't have to spell that for you by now because you know what it is. You found it, so you have to know how it's spelled, right? And you can also uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. And subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you are on iTunes, then if you subscribe there, make sure you leave us an inspirational quote with a five-star rating. This is going to make people realize 
how good the podcast is and they're going to be attracted to it. I appreciate you doing that. Now, let's get into it. Now, uh, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 19 says, If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Now, there's two key words in here that really tell us a lot about how God operates with mankind. The word willing and the word obedient. Neither one of those indicate that we are robots. So then what do they indicate? They indicate that we have our own will and we have our own thoughts of how we want to do things. And the reason why we have that is because we were created in the image and likeness of God. We were created to be just like God. So if that's the case, then that means this is bringing into this is bringing us into a very interesting part of this subject. Because now that seems to lend its ear to okay, maybe there's something more to this life than being in some cosmic puzzle and we are just doing what we were designed to do because we are really robots just following the, a designated plan and a line of thinking and all that so we're, we're, we are really not making any decisions for ourselves that scripture right there has debunked that whole thought that debunks that whole idea and we're going to get into some other things um, I believe I started to talk about this the last time from Leviticus where it said stuff about if you do this, then this will happen. But if you don't do this, then this will happen. That was a whole, almost a whole chapter, I think, that was, um, that was covering that whole type of subject of if you do this, then this will happen. But if you don't do this, then this will not happen. So, the bottom line is, <clears throat> those are two scriptures that are just the beginning of what we're going to touch on. Now, in the past, I don't, I don't think I hear it anymore these days, but in the past, definitely, I used to hear people talk about God giving them a sickness to teach them a lesson. Now, there was something that Jesus said to Satan when he came to him, and he told him um, something about jumping off of this place because he was going to be caught by the angels because the Bible says that they will bear him up in their hands lest he dash his foot against a stone. And Jesus made a very, very poignant statement. What did Jesus say? He said, God cannot be tempted, neither will he tempt. And that was a very key, that was a very key um, point because Satan thought for sure that he was going to, that he was going to get Jesus with that one. Um, let me see. I might be, I might be um, mixing up something right now. Let me see something. Okay. Well, you know what? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. James Chapter 1, verse 13 is saying it the way that I just said it. However, when Jesus was talking to Satan, he said something along the lines of, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, something along those lines. So we're going to get there in a minute, but I do want to read what James 1, verse 13 says. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempts he any man. So in other words, if something comes into your life or comes across your path and it is a temptation to you, it is not something that God sent your way. So do not put it on God that you got tempted because of him. So are we are answering the question. Yeah, we are kind of already answering the question. But I want to keep on proving the point because this is something that needs to be driven home. Some things cannot just be glossed over. 
Some things cannot just be you make a sentence statement and then you're done. Some things we got to really show the proof. It's just like going to court and you are the defense lawyer for someone and you got to prove that they're innocent. You don't get one scenario and one sentence to say, this is how we know that they're, they're um, innocent and then all of a sudden they're off. Because that one statement may not be enough and most likely will not be enough for that jury to really buy that that person is innocent. So with that being said, there has to be um, there has to be a lot of proof. So Matthew chapter four is where we're going to go for that scenario that I was telling you about. And this is what it says. I'm going to go up to verse five. It says, then the devil takes him up into the holy city and sets him on a pinnacle of the temple. Now, here's where it's kind of interesting. I mean, first of all, we know that Jesus was he was um, he was on a 40 day fast. But at this moment, it was at the end of his 40 day fast and he was weak. But here it says, you know what, let's go over this whole scenario because this is very important. It says, then was Jesus led up of the spirit. This is verse one. Then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So this clearly is showing us that it's the devil who was tempting him, not God. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. In other words, he was hungry after 40 days and 40 nights of not eating. And when the tempter came to him, notice it calls Satan the tempter. Satan is the tempter. He's the one that brings temptation. Let that be settled forever. He is the one who tempts, not God. So he said, the tempter said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written. He who Jesus, Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You notice how Jesus didn't say. You know that I am not supposed to turn a stone into bread. He didn't say, you know that I cannot turn a stone into bread. But what he, sp he spoke on was something far deeper than that. And it was, it was basically in line with the fact that he had just gotten off this fast. And he knows that basically Satan wants him to show off in so many words. And what we see here in these scenarios, you know, if you know anything about the New Testament, there's a scripture in the New Testament says that um, for all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are three categories of the sin that we face in life. Three categories. Sins are categorized in three different categories. And like I said, that is the pride of life, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. So when we see this, we are looking at Jesus in that same type of scenario. Jesus is actually facing the three categories of sin. You remember when the Bible says that um, he was tempted like us in all points, just like us, yet without sin. This is what it's talking about right here. These are the three areas. I'm not saying that he didn't have temptations at other points in time, you know, throughout, you know, his time or whatever. But there is something to be said about um, the fact that Jesus was tempted. Now, I'm going to go into something real quick, real quick, because there's a scripture 
that I think is going to be very key to understanding something here. Now, I, I know that, okay, you know what? I'm going to leave that alone for right now because I don't want to go into that. In, in so many words, it's going to, it could take us down a rabbit trail that I don't even want to try to go into right now because, to be honest, this is the first time that this thought has even come to my mind and I don't want it to come off the wrong way. So I'm not going to say anything about it. I don't want anything to be misconstrued that I'm saying. So on that note, I'm just going to go back to the scenario. Okay, so it says, Then the devil takes him up into the holy city and sets him on a pinnacle of the temple and says unto him, If you be the son of God, cast yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, it is written again, that thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now, this is what I wanted to say before. Jesus just came off of a 40-day fast. But apparently, he's going to certain places that the devil is trying to get him to do things. And I've never seen it this way before. But the question is, why was Jesus just going in these places and how was he doing it? Because, I mean, first of all, it's one thing when you say he took him somewhere. Oh, what did it say? It said that um, he took him up into the holy city, sets him on a pinnacle of the temple. So are you telling me literally that Jesus was on top of a temple? And the devil was trying to tell him jump off of it? First of all, how did Jesus have the strength after 40 days of fasting to just go up from out of the being out of the world out in the wilderness rather and he comes in to then go up to the top of the temple pinnacle. That's a lot of walking and following of a specific voice to go ahead and do certain things that right and that in and of itself is very interesting i don't know if you've ever known about this or thought about this or whatever but that in itself is very interesting that he would do that but here's where it basically really really tops that this is that was one thing but this is even worse it says in verse 8 again the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain. Do you understand that a mountain is is far different from a hill, far different from just walking down the street? He said he took him up. How is a devil taking him anywhere? That's what I'm curious about. How is he taking him? And so you got to think, I mean, if Jesus was walking <laughs> and he was following Satan or the leading of Satan, rather, or however you want to call it, he was following the prompt of Satan to go and to see what was going on and, you know, to, to, to be in a situation where Satan would, you know, try to... Um, make him do something in his flesh and in the weakness of his flesh wow i mean that's just amazing to me that he was going up to a exceeding high mountain it wasn't just a high mountain 
it was an exceedingly high mountain. And he goes up there, follows the devil up there, or goes up there. And, and then the Bible says, and the devil shows him. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And says unto him, All these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. I'm going to tell you what I really feel is going on here. Now, I'll be honest. I haven't looked into this particular verse, passage rather, of verses in detail like this or beyond this. But I really believe what's going on here. Jesus is still in the wilderness. But the enemy is coming and bringing all these imaginations to him. And trying to get him to go and do something. This is what's happening. He's being mentally challenged. You know the word of God talks about pulling down every imagination. And thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Casting down those imaginations. Now. What that means is that Satan will bring thoughts to our mind, imaginations and things of that nature to try to get us to do something. But when we recognize it as Satan, we have the power and authority to cast it down. And right now what we're seeing, I'm, I'm clear on this now. I just want to make it clear. At first I was, you know, kind of going through the question because this is what I do when I study the Bible. This is something that you should do when you study the Bible. You should question it, meaning you should say, okay, well, what is this really saying to me? What is this really about? Why would the Lord put this in here? Why did he say it that way? Why did they go to this location? Why was he given that name? You know, those are the types of questions that you should ask while you're studying the Bible. I'm going to get into studying how to study the Bible with you all at a future time for right now i'm just trying to show you this is why you know when you when you are trying to learn the bible you actually gotta ask questions like this so the thing is there are there are questions that you ask and it's not in the sense of questioning god as some people say you know people say you shouldn't question God or whatever, you know. And I'm going to say it like this. When you're in a relationship with somebody, questioning them is part of the relationship. You know, we're not on God's level. We're not in his league. However, he gives us leeway just like any other child to question him. To ask him questions. To be curious about things. To be like, I don't understand why you did that. Why did you do that? Can you please explain that to me? Obviously, God can choose not to explain it. But there are times when he will explain something. So here's the thing. In a situation like this, I was just, like I said... And I was going through the questions that I would ask. Like, okay, is it this way or what was it this or was it that? Well, the bottom line is it doesn't make sense that Jesus would just be all of a sudden leading the... First of all, it doesn't even say, say that he left the wilderness. What it says is that Satan took him up. So what does that really mean when it says he took him up? And that's where we will say, oh, okay. That word, if you if you um, if you look up that word in the Greek, that word actually means okay. So it's a combination. <clears throat> that phrase takes it takes him up. Um, one of those words is para lambano, and it means to receive near. That is associate with oneself in any familiar or intimate act or relation. By analogy to assume an office. Figuratively to learn. 
Then the next word is, let's see, autos, where we get auto from. The, reflect, the reflexive pronoun self. So if we put those two words together, we're, it's basically saying Satan comes, brings him near to him in a sense of he's talking to him. He's talking to him right there intimately. Like he's really trying to get into his mind so he came close the devil came close to him and he starts doing all these things like I said now when you see the part where he says uh, that he showed him the kingdom then it says he said unto him all these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me well first of all was it in Satan's power to quote unquote give it to him um, unfortunately, yes. And the reason why is because Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve gave up their certain control that they had when they allowed Satan to trick them. And when Satan tricked them, that's when they lost a certain amount of dominion and authority in the earth that they did once have. So... From that perspective, yes, Satan could have given it to him, so to speak. He had the least, so to speak, on the earth. However, Jesus, being who he is, said, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil leaves him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. So we see right there, that it was a scenario where God was allowing Satan to speak to Jesus like this. And, you know, he was tempting him and whatnot, but at, or not tempting him, but trying to tempt him. Um, and, and you know what? It could have been a temptation in that sense, because when you look at it, Jesus did want the kingdoms. He wanted to bring them back unto, under his rule. He did want to eat. So that was something that was brought under his rule. Or that was something that he would have wanted to you know, do at that moment. And then he did want to prove. He did have a desire to prove Satan to be, you know, whatever you want to call it. When he was trying to tempt him to jump offer something to prove that God has the power and that the angels can do it. Jesus knew, just like when he was talking to, uh, I believe it was, I'm not sure if it was Herod or, I'm not sure now, or, Pont or Pontius Pilate, I can't remember at this moment, but whoever he was talking to when he said, if I wanted to, he said, you don't have any power except my father gives it to you. But if I wanted to, I could call down 10,000 legions of angels to come and fight for me. He said, if my people, if my, um, I can't remember exactly his wording, I'll be honest. But he was talking about his um, people fighting for him and things of that nature, if they were his real subjects. But um, let me see. So he said, so this is in one, one scripture, it says, um, Matthew 26, and I will start at verse 50. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore are you come? Where did you come from? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus. In other words, they grabbed him and took him. And behold, 
one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again your sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? Now, I just came across the actual scripture that I was looking for. And the scripture that I was looking for is in John chapter 19. So in John chapter 19, specifically at verse 10, it says, oh, I'm going to start at verse 9. It says, and went again into the judgment hall. You know what? Let me go to verse 8. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. You know what? Let's go back and see what that saying was. Okay. John chapter 19 verse 5. Then Jesus then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate says unto them, Take him and crucify, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and says unto Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said unto him, Speak thou speakest thou not speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify you and have power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power against me except it were given you from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto you has the greater sin. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. I'm going to stop right there. Basically, I was trying to get to the part where Jesus basically told him, You don't have any power except it was given from above. That's the only reason why you have power. And that was the point that was very poignant because Jesus was showing him that he really had nothing he, he really had nothing without God allowing it to happen. Now, I just want to, I want to talk about something that um, I brought up earlier, and that is about sickness. There's been many times that I've heard throughout my life that people would say God gave them a sickness so that they could be taught a lesson. But that is completely contrary to who God is. God is not the one who gives us diseases. God says he is your healer. So if he is your healer, that will, okay, let me say it like this. It will be like a doctor saying, I'm going to give you this disease and then I'm going to heal you from it later. That makes no sense. Because... A doctor's whole job is to make sure you are healthy. There's supposed to be someone there to help you heal, to recover. They're not there to give you more sickness. That's what that's not what a doctor's supposed to be doing. Now, with that being said, it makes no sense just from a 
perspective of a good father. You know, there was a statement that was made. If uh, if you ask me for a fish, would I give you a scorpion? You know, those kind of things that uh, people, you know, said. It's like if if I'm able to if if you as if you as a natural father are able to give your kids good gifts, then how much more the father in heaven? So Matthew 7 is where we find this scenario. Matthew 7, and I'll start at verse... Um, Verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Now, this is a really cool thing about English that I don't find with other languages. But in English, we're able to do this a lot. So in this situation, those three words, the first letter in those three words, ask, seek, knock, are um, come to the word ask so ask is the most important thing in this whole scenario you gotta ask for you to ever get it god does not just give you stuff for the most part i'm not saying that there isn't there aren't times where he doesn't give us things as an added bonus because god does do that but for the most part you do not get things without asking for it from God. You find that principle throughout all aspects of life. If I don't ask for a cup of water, I won't get any. If I don't ask for something to eat, I won't get any. You see what I'm saying? Now, it says in verse 8, For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be open. Or what man is there of you, whom, if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? So the point is, is that God, he will not give you sickness. He gives good things, good things, good gifts. Sickness is not a gift. Never has been, never will be. Now, some people might say in the sense of, oh, okay, well, all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So they'll use that to basically say that them getting sick was good. First of all, you know, the Bible says, um, be joyful um, in all things, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't say be joyful because of all things. Or in all things rejoice. Not for all things rejoice. There is a difference. You can be in a situation that you hate. That is not good or whatever. And you can have you can rejoice. But then you could be in another situation where. It's you know you're in it because. Um, I won't even go there. I'm just going to say. You can be in a bad situation and not allow the situation to bring you down. You can still rejoice in the midst of the situation, showing that you are not giving in to the situation and you're not going to allow the situation to change the way you see yourself, your life, or even God. But you're going to stand strong and firm within that situation. So... Here's the thing that I want to now ask. 
if God was in control of everything, we're talking about a difference between being in control and being a sovereign king or being a, um, I'm going to call it a manipulator. If God was completely in control, then why was there ever sin in the earth? Adam and Eve, who are the first humans on the earth, they were perfect without sin. They were the only two other people on this planet, aside from Jesus, who were created perfect. Who, who up until the point that they sinned had not sinned and they were perfect and with those two people in that situation having the chance to save or to hurt all mankind they made a decision God did not stop it God did not intervene God did not um, tell them no. God did not stop them. God did not block them. You getting the point? So was he in control? No, he was not in control. This is the point that I'm trying to get you to. I'm trying to get you to a point where you realize God is not in control. That does not mean he does not know what's going to do, what's going to happen and what he needs to do to cause things to be done a certain way. In other words, he knew that Adam and Eve would do what they did, but he already made a provision before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So the world was not founded yet. When Jesus was already slain. So if he was already slain. God already knew what was going to happen. And he allowed it to happen. For his own reasons. His own purposes. And then later on. Jesus comes into the earth. In time. And he releases what it was. That he was slain before the foundation of the world. To release. This is a powerful scenario. It's a powerful situation, which means that God allowing us to have our choices, knowing that we're going to make certain types of choices. He also had a way to provide provision for those choices that were made, knowing that certain ones would choose it and other ones would not choose it. In other words, some, ple some people will choose to accept Jesus into their life. Others will reject him. That is the ultimate sin. I mean, when I say the ultimate sin, I mean it in the sense of, you know, the Bible says that if a person uh, blasphemes the Holy Spirit, they will never be forgiven. That's powerful. I mean, that's very, very deep that God said he will never forgive you for that. God is a forgiving God and he will never forgive you for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Essentially what he's saying is, it's like, and you know, obviously it's different for people. For people, we have to forgive. We have to forgive because if we don't forgive, God won't forgive us. Now, here's the thing though. As forgiving and loving as God is, because he's God, he has the prerogative of whether he wants to forgive you or not. For the most part God wants to forgive us. That is his nature to forgive. He loves us. He loves us and he wants to forgive us. Knowing that we're going to make mistakes. But here's the difference between a mistake. And blaspheming the Holy Spirit. When you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You are directly attacking God. And you are directly speaking evil of him 
in a way that you know specifically that you're doing it. It's one thing to be ignorant of something and you don't know. But when a person blasphemes the Holy Spirit, they know exactly what they're doing. They're intentionally doing it. Jesus made a statement. He said, you can say whatever you want about me. You can say whatever you want about the Father. But if you say anything against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Now, that would be equivalent to how a lot of husbands think. Most husbands on this planet will say, man, you can say whatever you want to say about me. I don't care. Just don't talk about my wife. That's where we're going to have a problem. That's how protective men are typically over their wives. And so the point is, is that Jesus was making a statement about the Holy Spirit that it almost kind of gives you this sense of if there was a wife, the Holy Spirit would be like kind of like the wife in the sense of, you know, how God views the Holy Spirit and people offending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a wife. I just want to make that clear, very clear. The Holy Spirit is a male. It's a he. Okay, that's the Spirit of God. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's a, there's a study, so to speak, or um, a future podcast that I have been thinking about doing that is going to shake the theology of a lot of people. Is going to make them rethink and relook at what the Bible says and what it means when it speaks of God and the Holy Spirit and and Jesus. Although the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is going to make people rethink what that really means, what that really points to. Because I'm going to tell you just like this. There's nowhere in the Bible. This is going to I'm just going to give you a little teaser right now. There is nowhere in the Bible where it says there were three beings who are making decisions together about you know mankind. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that. But there is a place that says Jesus ascended unto heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So what do we see? We see the Father and we see the Son. I'm going to stop there with with that, but we're coming we're going to come back to that another time. I'm going to just let you marinate on that. But getting back to what we were talking about just now, God being offended in that sense of the spirit being offended because here's the thing when a person blasphemes the Holy Spirit what they're literally doing is speaking evil of the Holy Spirit they're slandering the Holy Spirit they're saying the spirit of God is satanic or something like that that's how you offend the Lord to the point where there is no forgiveness for that it's like intentionally trying to hurt him. See, there's one thing to say, okay, I don't believe in God. That's one thing. I don't believe God exists. I don't, um, um, or whatever. I hate God or whatever, you know, something like that where, you know, you're just saying a general statement out of anger or whatever the case may be because, you know, something didn't happen the way you want it. And I can tell you that most atheists, pretty much all atheists that I've ever come across, all of them have had a reason why they did not want to believe in God. And their reason has been mostly 
because of something that did not happen in their life the way they thought it should happen. And normally it revolves around a parent or some loved one that they really loved and were close to. And they feel like an injustice was done to them in the sense of they died too soon. They got murdered, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's some sickness that they had, things of that nature. Typically, that's the kind of thing that causes an atheist to so-called be an atheist. It really comes down to the fact that they think God is so in control of everything that they blame God for something that didn't happen the way they thought it should happen. This is why it's so important to know whether God is really in control or not. To understand what God did when he set up the earth. Now we're going to go to this one last verse for now. And we're going to finish this up probably on the next one. But um, this is going to be very, very helpful. Psalms 115 verse 16. It says, The heaven, the heavens the are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. So, when we look at this, we see specifically that God is in control of the heaven. But he said, heaven and the heavens, but he's given the earth to the children of men. What does that mean to God, to us? That means that God... As, as we found in many other situations. Is saying the same thing throughout the scriptures. He's been saying it. He's been saying it. trying to find this one scripture where it said the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof so there's a couple places where this comes out as that Psalms 24 verse 1 it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So, it's the Lord's. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26 says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and you, bid, and you be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake, So in other words, so then he says, but if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, okay, so let me, let me read verse 29 first. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which for that for which I give thanks? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. So what he's basically saying is, 
if somebody brings if somebody says hey come and come and eat with me just go eat with them don't ask them anything about the food in the sense of is this food offered up to another god or is this food, you know just eat it with them eat the food there's nothing wrong with it but if they say i offer this up to allah i offer this up to buddha you know what i'm saying like that then you can't eat it. Why? Because now you know, without a doubt, they offered it up to their false god. And you cannot eat their food offered up to a false god because you got to make a point. You got to make a point to them. I do not eat food offered up to another god. That's not the true and living god. I don't eat that food. That's the difference. Knowing or having a knowledge of the fact that this was offered up to a God versus you just ate the food because it's good. So the point is, is that um, we, we know that the earth is the Lord's. But we also know that the Bible says he's given it to the children of men. There's a reason why the Bible says it that way. So we just need to be in a place where we understand God is, the earth belongs to him, but he's not in control of everything that happens here. You know, there was a, there's a scripture that says, you know, the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord send uh, um, the laborers for the harvest in so many words that's what it said so the point is is that God expects man to do the work and he will work with man when they do the work see there was a, a scripture where it said the Holy Spirit working with Jesus or something I can't remember if it was with Jesus or was the disciples but um let me look it up real quick. Okay. Um, I don't remember exactly where it is but i know that there's a scripture that talks about the spirit working with these people and the point was is that you know the lord the holy spirit works with us so mark chapter 16 verse 20 it seems like this might be where it is it says then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So this is where we see the Lord, the signs coming because the Lord was doing, he was working with them. So that's how um, we do things. We work with the Lord. We don't do it on our own if it's something that God is showing us to do or whatever. We're doing it with him. But what we need to realize is that he's not doing it without working with us. I'm going to give you, when we do the part three, I'm going to start showing you biblical examples of why this is the way God does things. And further to drive the point home, which you probably getting you getting it by now. If not, then you'll definitely have it by the end of next week about whether God is really in control. And I know there's some people because I know how I can be. There's some people out here that's probably thinking, well, they got a technicality way that they'll look at it. They'll say, well, yeah, God is in control. Because they'll be thinking about the ultimate plans of God being manifested and done, you know, according to what he desires. 
And like I said, I know how that is because I can be the same way. And if you want to go there, then we could say, okay, the ultimate plan of God shows his ultimate control of a situation or a result and an outcome. There is a certain outcome that we will see on this earth after all is said and done. Yes, there is a certain outcome we will see. However, does that show God being in control of everything? That is the question. And we're going to continue this, continue answering that question in the next part of this series. Thanks again for being with me. I appreciate you, fam. Um, thanks for your support. Make sure you follow me. Again, make sure you share this also with those that are around you, your friends, family, neighbors, whatever. You know, there's a lot of people that need to know this kind of stuff and they don't know it. And don't hawk it up for yourself, man. Don't don't keep it to yourself and not share it out there with people that are also interested. There's a lot of people interested in these kind of things, but they don't know where to find it. So just start sharing it, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it very much. I will be so grateful to you for sharing this around social media and all kinds of places wherever you are. I appreciate you doing this. And like I said, thank you for your all of your support. Once again, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you're on Apple Podcasts, make sure you give it a five-star rating with an inspirational quote, comment rather. And uh, follow me on Instagram, Norm the Professor. Or follow me, follow uh, follow the podcast also, New Numa, at New Numa. Okay? Thanks again. I appreciate you. Peace. What's up, family? This is Norman. Thanks for listening to New Numa. We appreciate you, and that includes your feedback. What do you like most about the podcast? What are your favorite subjects? What types of guests would you like to hear more? Shoot us an email today at new.numa.podcast at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Peace.